Chapter 3 of The Astonishing History of Troy Town by Sir Arthur Thomas Quillacooch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 3 Of a blue jerseyed man that would hoist no more bricks, and a nightcap that had no business to be where it was. No one acquainted with the character of that extraordinary town will be surprised when I say that within an hour after the occurrences related in the last chapter, Troy had resumed its workday quiet. By two o'clock nothing was to be heard but the tick-tack of mallets in the shipbuilding yards, the puffing of the steam-tug, the rattle of hawsers among the vessels out in the harbour, and the melodious woo-hoo of a crew at capstan or windlass. Troy, in carnival, and Troy, sober, are as opposite, you must know, as the poles. Fun is all very well, but business is business, and Troy is a trading port with a character to keep up, for who has not heard the byword, working like a Trojan? At two o'clock on this same day, a little schooner lay alongside the town quay, busily discharging bricks. That is to say, a sunburnt man, blue-jerseyed and red with brick-dust, leisurely turned a windlass, which let down an empty bucket and brought it up full. Another blue-jerseyed man, also sunburnt and red with brick-dust, then pulled it on shore, emptied and returned it, and the operation was repeated. A choleric little man of about fifty, presumably the proprietor of the bricks, stood on the edge of the quay and swore alternately at the man with the windlass and the man ashore. "'Look here,' said the man at the windlass, after a bit. "'Stop cussing. This ain't a hurdy-gurdy. If you expects music, you'll have to toss up a copper.' The owner of the bricks swore worse than ever. Round went the windlass as leisurely as might be, and another bucketful was hoisted ashore. Man on deck spat on his hands and broke into cheerful song. Was you ever to Quebec, bonny laddie, highland laddie? Was you ever to Quebec, rising timber o'er the deck? Hey, my bonny laddie, waru me arts. The rage of the little man found extra vent. Look here, Caleb Trotter, he concluded, after a full minute of profanity. How do you think I'm to get my living and pay a set of lubber adults like you? Caleb paused with his hand on the windlass and suggested retrenchment of the halfpenny a week hitherto spent in manners. "'Cause, you see, all this politeness of yourn is a runnin' of waste,' he explained with fine irony. But before the next lead was more than three parts hoisted, Caleb's patience was exhausted. What he did was simple but decisive. He removed his hold. The handle whizzed violently round, and the bucket of bricks descended to the hold with a crash. "'Now I tell you straight, enough's enough.' "'and I haven't got time at my time of life "'to be polite to every red-faced chap I meet. "'You can pay me or no as you likes, "'but I'm off to get a drink. "'And that's all about it. "'And when it's over, it's over, "'as Joan said at her wedding.' "'With this, Caleb stepped ashore, "'spat good-naturedly, put his hand in his pockets, "'and went off, whistling. "'At this moment, Mr. Fogo, "'who'd been on the quay long enough to hear this altercation, "'touched him softly by the arm. "'You said you were going to have a drink, I believe. "'May I go with you? "'I wish to ask you a few questions.' "'Certainly, sir,' said Caleb, with a stifled grin, "'as he recognised the hero of the morning. "'I generally patronises the King of Prussia for beer. "'It won't make your hair curl, "'nor yet prevent your seeing a whole drawer ladder. "'But perhaps neither of these is your object.' "'Mr. Fogo, a little bewildered, "'replied modestly that he pursued neither of these aims.' Caleb led the way across the quay, and they ascended to the steps of the King of Prussia together. "'My object,' 
said Mr. Fogo timidly, as they were seated together in the low-roofed parlour before two foaming mugs. "'My object was this. In the first place, I like your look.' "'Same to you, sir,' said Caleb, and acknowledged the compliment with a draught. "'Though tis what my girl said afore she deserted me for a Russian.' "'Are you a single man, then?' "'To be sure, sir.' "'So much the better. But I will talk of that presently.' I, too, am a single man, with rather peculiar tastes. One of these is solitude. I had heard of Troy as a place where I was likely to find this. Though my experience of this morning— Never mind, sir. Accidents will happen even in the best-regulated families. You was took for another, which has happened even to Bible characters before this. Though Jacob is the only one I can call to mind just now. Still, I should be sorry to go back with the knowledge that my journey has been in vain— but I must have solitude at any price, and the reason why I am consulting you is that you might possibly know of a house to let in this neighbourhood, where I could be alone and secure against visitors. Caleb scratched his head. I'm sure, sir, tis hard to say. Troy's a powerful place for knowing what your neighbours got for dinner, and they do say as the Admiral's telescope will carry through a brick wall. Mr. Fogo's face fell. Stop a bit, said Caleb more brightly. "'About living inside of the time now. "'Is that a shiny cannon?' "'A, a what?' "'A shiny cannon, which is the same as to say, "'Won't it do else?' "'Oh, uh, sine qua non,' said Mr. Fogo. "'No, I'm not particularly anxious to live in the town itself.' "'Would the matter of a mile up the river be out of the way?' "'Not at all. "'And about rent? Uh, "'Within reasonable limits, th that would not matter.' "'Then my advice to you, sir, is to see the twins about it.' Mr. Fogo's mild face looked more puzzled than ever. He removed his spectacles, wiped, and resumed them. "'For any reasonable object,' he said, "'I'm ready to see any number of twins, much as I dislike babies.' But here Caleb interrupted him by bursting into a roar of laughter which lasted for half a minute. "'Babies! Well, oh, excuse me, sir, but oh dear, oh dear, babies! Well, here he slapped his thigh and broke into another roar, at the end of which he grew fairly black in the face. "'Bless your innocent heart, sir! They're a matter of six foot high, they're both, and rising forty. Dear love's their name, and lives up the river along with their sister, Peter and Paul and Tamsin, which is short for Thomasina, and I've heard tell as the boys came nigh to being christened Sino and Og, only the old vicar said he'd be blowed first. Very fee with his language was the old vicar.' I, "'I should fancy so,' said Mr. Fogo. "'But you excuse me, I don't quite see yet why you advise me to call on these people.' "'Oh, no offence, sir. Only they own Kit's house, that's all.' "'I see. And Kit's house is the place you have in your mind?' "'That's it, sir.' "'And these dear loves, where do they live?' "'Further up the river by two mile. "'Could you row me up this afternoon to see them?' Caleb Trotter rose and drew the back of his hand across his mouth. "'Well, all the pleasure in life, sir,' as Uncle Zacky said when he gave his daughter in marriage. In less than ten minutes, Caleb had brought his boat round to the quay. Mr. Fogo stepped in, and was presently seated in the stern, and meditatively listening, while Caleb rowed and talked like a Trojan. Here we may leave them for a while, and returned to the Admiral, whom we left in the act of plunging furiously into his own house. It was not the habit of that fiery little tar to hide his emotions from the wife of his bosom. "'Emily!' he bellowed. "'Emily, I say! Come down this instant!' The three Mrs. Buzzer at the parlour window knew the tone, and shuddered. 
Mrs. Buzzer, upstairs, heard, trembled, and obeyed. "'Yes, darling, what is it?' "'Fill the warming-pan at once. I go to bed.' "'To bed, love?' "'Yes, to bed. Don't I speak plain enough? To bed, ma'am, to bed, and at once.' "'You're upset, dearest. Be cool, I implore you.' "'Be cool, be cool. Don't hector me, ma'am, for fetch that warming-pan at once. I'll teach you about being cool. Sophie, pull off my boots.' They obeyed. The warming-pan was brought, an enormous engine big enough to hold the Admiral himself, and the bed heated. The Admiral undressed, and himself a warming-pan of rage, plunged between the sheets. It was a wonder the bedclothes were not on fire. "'Pull down the blind, and bring me something to eat.' "'Yes, love.' "'And be quick about it. Can't you see I'm starving?' It is true that the Admiral's excitement had interfered with his breakfast that morning, but it was none the less difficult to read starvation upon his face. Mrs. Buzzer obeyed, and presently returned with a liver-wing of a fowl. "'You call that a dinner for a hungry man, I suppose? Bring me some more!' "'My dear, I didn't know you wanted a dinner.' "'Confound it, ma'am! Must I put dress-studs in my nightshirt to convince you I want to dine? Bring me some more!' "'There is no more fowl, dear. I kept this from yesterday's as a tidbit for you.' "'What's for dinner to-day?' Uh, "'Boiled beef.' "'But you said expressly that dinner was to be late to-day, in consequence of the arrivals, and it is not nearly done yet.' "'I don't care. Bring it!' The mention of the arrivals sent the Admiral up to a white heat again. "'But my—' "'Bring it!' It was brought. The Admiral had two helpings, and then a glass of grog. "'Go!' Mrs. Buzzer withdrew. Left to himself, the Admiral tossed and turned and fumed and swore, lay still for a while, and then repeated the process backwards. After a time the bedclothes began to prick him, and the heat to become a positive torture. He leapt out and tore at the bell-rope, until it came away in his hand, just as his wife reappeared. "'Will you kindly inform me what the devil's wrong with this bed? Who made it?' "'Selina, dear. Then would you kindly give Selina a month's notice on the spot? Do you hear? On the spot. What's that?' The Admiral rushed to the window and pulled up the blind was just in time to see a close carriage and pair dash past and pull up at the bar. A moment afterwards, Miss Limpany, from the first-floor story of number one, saw the carriage door open and a tall gentleman emerge. The tall gentleman was followed by a lady, whom even at that distance Miss Limpany could see to possess a remarkably graceful figure. A small youth in livery sprang down from beside the coachman and helped to lower the boxes, whilst the new arrivals passed into the house where the charwoman, Mrs. Snell, stood smearing her face with her apron and ducking in frenzied welcome. The Honourable Frederick Augustus Hythe Goodwin Sandys and his wife, instead of arriving by train, had posted from Five Lanes Junction. There was no public demonstration. They might as well have come in the dead of night. Miss Limpenham was almost the sole witness of their arrival, and Miss Limpenham's observations were cut short by a terrible occurrence. She had taken stock of the Honourable Frederick, and pronounced him aristocratic-looking, of the Honourable Mrs. Frederick's travelling dress, and decided it to be Camille Faux. She had counted the boxes twice, and made them seven each time. She was about to count the buttons on the liveried youth, when— To this day she sinks her voice as she narrates it. She saw the unseemliness, the monstrous indelicacy of it. She saw the nightcap and shoulders of Admiral Buzzer, "'craning out the next-door window. "'What happened next 
Whether she actually fainted or merely kept her eyes shut, she cannot clearly remember. But for weeks afterwards, as she declares, the sight of a man caused her to turn all colours. It was significant, this nightcap of Admiral Buzzer, as the ram's horn to Jericho, the mother carries chicken to the doomed ship. It announced, even as it struck, the first blow at the old morality of Troy. End of chapter 3